Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Walhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes, Susan Pennegrass, and Patrick Ishmael from the Show Me Institute. David, this past Tuesday, there was a special election in Missouri, and there were several things voted on across the state. What are some of the key issues that you were keeping tabs on? There wasn't a lot on the ballot on this uh, little-used August of an odd-numbered year election day. A uh, uh, couple things stood out, though. One, one statewide, it, it may seem minor, but if there's one thing that's going to affect a lot of Missourians, it's going to be the the new small new sales tax passed for for law enforcement, specifically the sheriff's department in Camden County. Why would a sales tax in Camden County matter? Well, that's the that's the heart of the Lake of the Ozark region, which so many Missourians go to uh, frequently. It gets a lot of attention, both fictional and non fictional and nonfiction in America. So it'll be it'll be interesting. They're going to hire more deputies with it. It passed by a fairly wide margin. They're planning on hiring more deputy deputies, give raises to the ones they have, and it'll be interesting to see if they have a a stronger law enforcement presence in Lake of the Ozarks because of this. And most importantly, I hope somehow that this has worked into the plot line of season four of, of Ozark to see if Marty Bird and the the drug cartels are perhaps brought down by increased resources in the Lake of the Ozark Sheriff's Department. Like that would that would be great if this could go into the show. But most interestingly is was a referendum on the ballot in Webster Groves yesterday. Webster Groves, a well known uh, fairly large suburb of St. Louis, where several months ago they passed some zoning changes in the city, liberalizing the zoning laws in their single-family residential areas to to allow for much greater building and use of duplexes. Uh, certainly, I'm not opposed to duplexes, and I'm not opposed to, the, in general, liberalizing zoning laws. But a lot of people in Webster Groves certainly certainly were, and it was a very interesting debate, which had more to do, I think, in talking with the Webster Groves voters who I spoke with, it had more to do than just the duplex question and had some had a lot to do, I think, with larger changes, both prior and upcoming in Webster Groves to really change the what the what the opponents of the of the council bill thought was there were a lot of people, new members of the council really trying to change the makeup of, of Webster Groves. And again, when it comes to liberalizing zoning laws, I'm not even generally going to be opposed to that at all. But the the highest turnout in the state was certainly in Webster Groves yesterday, where they had over 5,000 people vote, which for an obscure special election like this was very good turnout. And the referendum to reject the ordinance passed by the council and reject the zoning changes that the council passed, that referendum passed fairly substantially, over 60% of the vote. So it was a really interesting decision here. And what makes it so interesting to me is I think we're going to get a lot more of this in in America and in Missouri. There's a lot of good things that can be done, particularly on the place on the coasts and elsewhere where housing is extremely expensive, to, to liberalize zoning laws and make it easier to build apartments, condos, housing for people, and hopefully and presumably, therefore, lower the average cost of housing in this country. <coughs> Was that, an, was that an argument that you're aware of that was being made by proponents for this, that it was a, an affordable housing issue? Yes, they, w- they were saying that. And obviously that's less of an issue in Missouri, where our housing is generally very affordable by any way you, you look at it. But people, supporters in Webster Groves were saying that they wanted more options for housing 
for lower income, middle income people in Webster Groves and that they thought adding duplex options was a way to do that. And I think they would have been right, like adding more duplexes and adding more options like that would, would do that. But the, the, the citizens of Webster Groves came out fairly, fairly strongly opposed to that in, in Tuesday's special election by overturning, using the referendum to overturn this. And I think, again, I just think we're going to see a lot of this. I think this is a debate that in the next, over the next decade, we are frequently going to see in, in Missouri and the rest of the country. And I think it's a good debate to have because I think in some places in the state of Missouri, the loaning laws are, the zoning laws, excuse me, are certainly too tight. And in other parts of the country, the problem is much worse. But it's just a, it's a discussion we're going to have as a state and as a country. And I, I, look, I look forward to the debate. Patrick, I know you're working on a project surrounding affordable housing in the Kansas City area. Um, not to spoil any of the conclusions that you're going you're gonna to draw from your work, but what role has zoning regulation and reform so far played in that project uh, that you're working on? Well, it hasn't played a, a really large role, but like David said, I mean, Kansas City and St. Louis and Missouri as a whole generally has pretty affordable housing, pretty reasonably priced. And we're in a different situation than other places like uh, San Francisco, where zoning laws are you know, front and center in that discussion, because not only do you have a, you know, an oceanfront effectively that people are bidding up prices for, but you also have limitations on what can be put on those parcels of land. And so the prices go up and up and up. Fortunately, in Kansas City and in St. Louis and across the state, one thing that we don't have a shortage of is land, which means that, you know, you can have really expansive suburbs and exurbs, uh, along with the fact that our transportation network system here in uh, in, in the state is just really extensive. The, the, the lane miles are just, uh, you know, among the highest in the state when it comes to, to our highways. So you can get into and out of these cities very easily, which makes it more justifiable if you really want to, to buy a house that's farther away because it's cheaper, because you can get to where you need to go fairly quickly. So in terms of zoning, you know, it's, it's not, I, I don't think the, the primary driver of cost uh, for homes, for affordability in the state right now. Uh, and of course, we're, we're also in a very odd time. You know, we're coming out of the pandemic. You have lumber prices that are through the roof. They're starting to relax a little bit. You, you throw in the fact that uh, now there's almost certainly going to be renewed litigation over the uh, eviction moratorium that was issued by the uh, Center for Disease Control, which was intended to help mitigate the spread of coronavirus, uh, even though now we don't know that they really have the authority to do it or that the, uh, the, the uh, administration has the authority to stop uh, uh, landowners uh, from evicting people who aren't paying. There are a lot of factors in play here. Certainly zoning is, is on the table, but I think in our region, I, it, it might be a a second second order kind of or secondary concern um it's there but it's not necessarily the biggest one in comparison to a place like san francisco or new york or someplace on the coast where land is at a premium we we have lots of land here david before we move away from the special election can we do, just do kind of a quick roundup of some of the other items you mentioned last week how did the st louis community college vote shake out well the community college vote passed uh it passed in all four counties that were voting on it, which was all of St. Louis County and St. Louis City and smaller parts of Franklin and Jefferson County. It was it is somewhat close in St. Louis County, but even there it, it passed by a, a decent margin. So look, it's, a, it's an eight cent property tax increase. 
uh, for the average homeowner, that's that's not going to be a dramatic increase for you, unless you're in Frontenac, where combined with the very large tax increase that was just passed by the voters of Frontenac, uh, somewhat surprisingly, in my opinion, I mean, I feel for the, they had very small turnout in Frontenac. They only had about six, 700 people vote, and and only about yeah probably a little less than that. They had about 350 people pass this very large tax increase, uh, over double doubling more than doubling the residential rate and tripling the commercial rate. And I predict, when, especially when you combine that with the community college tax increase, and then the the property assessment increases people are seeing, because uh, these two tax increases are going to be imposed before rates are rolled back to offset the property tax increases. I mean, the property assessment increases. So come November, when people in Frontenac get their property tax bills, I predict a lot of very angry calls to the city and county with people demanding to know why their property taxes went up, went up so high. On the contrary, in Clayton, a much more modest property tax increase uh, was defeated. Uh, that was that was an 18 cent per hundred dollars, which to give you some context for a half a million dollar home in Clayton would have been a hundred and seventy dollars for that for that home if it was half a million. And that went that went down. And uh, I thought that was a strange combination for the large one to pass in Frontenac and the more modest one to fail in Clayton. I would have predicted more of a reverse. But hey, the this is what this is what the Hancock Amendment brings to Missouri. You have to have votes on this, and and local residents and taxpayers get to decide on how they want to fund their city in, in different taxes. And it's a it's a very the Hancock Amendment's a wonderful thing. Patrick, you are our resident sunshine law expert, and I believe that you have a uh, a, a new story to tell us about. Yeah. So this morning, the Heartlander, which is an online news publication, reported that. Uh, there may have been a sunshine violation uh, in the way in which the city council in Kansas City reduced the funding of the Kansas City Police Department. And for those unfamiliar with the situation, um, the Kansas City uh, Police Department is basically presided over by a police commission. Uh, and the police commission decides what the budget is and the Kansas City, the city of Kansas City provides funds for it. Well, after the legislative session ended in May, the city council uh, in a single day, a, a, a nine-member majority of the 13-member council decided to reduce the, the police department's funding uh, and set aside what was police department funding into kind of a special fund for uh, police sort of service, services, public services that these council members wanted to have control over. Uh, it created a lot of outcry, especially north of the river here in Kansas City, because uh, the Northland council people were excluded from these conversations. Uh, and the fact that it all happened in one day uh, surprised a lot of people, including a lot of residents. Well, what has happened is that there's a group called Liberty Alliance USA, which is a conservative group. They've made some sunshine law requests to the city. And what appears to have happened is that the, the majority of the members, these nine members, um, appear to have engaged in meetings that would have been covered by the Sunshine Law. Um, in Kansas City, it requires seven members to establish a quorum on the council. Nine members were in, in, in a part of these conversations, setting up who was going to be a co-sponsor in all these conversations. Uh, and when you go through some of the emails that uh, uh, have been published now, it it's, looks pretty clearly that uh, this was a meeting that you had uh, these members of the council who were engaged in public business 
electronically uh, in that it was reduced to writing. And, and at one point, one of the uh, lawyers, uh, they sent an email out to these nine council people, then sent out an email two minutes later uh, and said, please reply individually to this email rather than as a reply all. And about an hour later, one of the council people replied all anyway. And and I think that that provides at least some reason to, to believe that this was covered under the Sunshine Law. But even, you know, if you look at the Sunshine Law itself, um, the Sunshine Law is to be liberally construed. And, and this is what the law says. It is the public policy of the state that meetings, records, votes, actions, and deliberations of public governmental bodies be open to the public unless otherwise provided by law. Uh, these sections shall be liberally construed and their exceptions strictly construed to promote this public policy. And so I, I think that under normal circumstances, had there been an, a, a hearing, an open hearing, uh, open discussion about what the council, this majority was planning on doing, I don't know that this would necessarily be a big issue. I, I think it would have probably still been a technical violation of the Sunshine Law, but I think one of the big objections from the Northland Council people is that they weren't involved in the process. Uh, and so because they weren't involved in the process, because the public wasn't involved in the process, I think these communications over email and by text really do raise some serious questions. Now, what is what is the uh, solution to this? If they did violate the law, what, what are the potential options? I mean, a court could say, well, everything pursuant uh, you know, that, that followed these meetings, including the vote dealing with these issues, maybe that gets thrown out. But I don't know that that really changes the status quo in Kansas City, because even when you have uh, a future open meetings and votes on this, I think the council members will still probably vote the same way. So I don't know that it's going to really change the trajectory of this litigation. And, and certainly there's already litigation pending between the commissioners and the city about the way the city uh, was cutting their funding. But um, it, I think it's a great example, though, of, you know, everybody is best served when legislators, when public officials engage in a culture of transparency, where it doesn't look like they're trying to sneak things around the public or sneak things around their, their peers on the council. Because once you start doing that, once you start undermining the confidence and the honesty of the institutions, it's very, very hard to get that back. And, you know, when you go through the, these documents, it certainly looks like a meeting to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, if there's a lawsuit, um, the courts will end up deciding this. But I, I do think that this is a, a, a relevant issue. I think that, uh, you know, the council, the majority on the council should have been open about this from the beginning, about what they were intending on doing. And because they weren't open about it, I think that's kind of what what has brought this renewed interest into what preceded that over email and over text. Um, I don't know that, that there would have been uh, much objection or concern about these correspondences uh, had they been having open meetings and, and public meetings about this prior, but they didn't. And, and that's why they are where they are right now with the Sunshine Law. Speaking generally about the Sunshine Law in Missouri, and I'm thinking about your other project, your Show Me Curricula project that you're working on right now. Um, it seems like our sunshine law might have a, a, a teeth issue, right? Or a, a lack of teeth issue that um, some of these issues, we, we run into dead ends pretty quickly on some of this stuff. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, you, you have to be able to hold people accountable who are in violation of the law, probably on an individual basis. But I think probably the, the, the greatest problem is that the, the Sunshine Law itself provides too great a latitude for local governments, for local agencies, for the state to kind of make their own rules about what they want to give and what they don't want to give. 
And one of the only solutions that you can really pursue in that kind of a circumstance is to be explicit in the law about what uh, local governments have to provide. And we have talked about this for literally years. Uh, you know, uh, we, we've seen two versions of uh, uh, the, Sun, uh, the Show Me Checkbook project uh, enter the law, either you know through uh, regulation as it pertains to the Missouri Treasurer's Office, which has the Show Me Checkbook actually you know on the site already or you know created uh for the office of administration through law as it did this year in hb 271 so there you know the one of the deficiencies of those programs though is that they're voluntary that they're not mandatory you have to compel these uh, officials to provide this information whether it's spending data whether it's curricula data uh, because otherwise they're just going to have you take a long walk off a short pier because oh, there aren't really sufficient consequences in the sunshine law to get them to do what they're and, and when, especially when you're talking about school districts you have 500 something school districts um, how often are all those districts going to get the attention that they need to um, and the answer is probably not that often and the only way to fix that, and that applies to cities and counties that may not get a lot of attention the only way that you can get around that is to basically take it out of their hands and say look you have to report what you're spending. You have to report what you're teaching kids. We're going to put it on a state website. And if, you know, in any given year, you haven't provided this data, uh, we're going to have to take a hard look at how you're running your operations. And uh, you know, there, there, is, there is an agreement, essentially, that if you are going to take money from people through taxation, through force, which is what taxation is, you should be transparent about what you're doing with that money. And if you're not, then I think the state needs to take a hard look at these local jurisdictions when it pertains to local jurisdictions and say, should you in the end continue to exist if you cannot fulfill that side of the agreement? If you can take money, you should be reporting what you're doing. And if you're not reporting what you're doing, um, the state needs to step in. The state has an obligation to protect the rights of individuals in those jurisdictions. Uh, and I think when it comes to Sunshine, uh, I think that the state is probably gonna have to get a lot more explicit about what it's going to demand of local government and, and local jurisdictions and local districts because uh, they're not willing to uh, remain transparent in the way they ought to be on their own. Just to follow up on that, uh, I mean, Patrick's com completely right. And I, you know, just we support, we've released some of our AIM document or coming up for AIR documents. I said, I said AIM, I meant AIR about the use of the use of stimulus funding and the like. But what, Patrick stated there, which I want to follow up on, is the the idea of all these small towns and villages in the state of Missouri. There are hundreds and hundreds of them that would really are just incapable, whether through lack of desire or more likely just lack of staff and technology to to provide the information that they need to provide. And I think the state needs a bit of a carrot approach to go out to them. And we talk about this some in our in our Arab th documents about helping them with some of the technological needs to produce this this financial data, to produce this work, to make it public for their own taxpayers and and the counties that they're in and whatnot. But but beyond that, like if they if the state gives a little bit of a carrot and a little bit of an help in them doing that, if they're still not able to do that, uh, I think absolutely the the question of disincorporation of of some of these really small villages and towns throughout the state of Missouri should be should be on the table if those. If these small villages and towns can't meet very basic transparency 
uh, and public information requirements, then would those communities be better off being un unincorporated just parts of their, their counties, many of which are small counties that have their own problems reaching the, these, these goals, but at least those are larger organizations that should be able to accomplish it. I, I, I want to add, though, too, though, that this isn't necessarily an issue where you have um, only small cities and towns that aren't responsive. In fact, during the, the Show Me Checkbook project, we had towns as small as 20 or 30 people providing us with the records that we wanted. And in fact, the real problem cities uh, and towns were cities in town between, say, three and 10,000 people. They're large enough to take in significant revenue, but they're small enough that they're kind of like a high school where everyone kind of knows one another. And so in those circumstances, um, I, I think that it, it, it is going to require less of a, a carrot and more of a stick because um, you, you, you ask state legislators right now, uh, you know, how many of these cities are actually providing summary financial information that they're, that's already required of them. And it's only about half of the state that's doing it. And that's a serious problem. So I think in, you're right. In, in some cases, if you're talking about a, a small town that doesn't have the tech, technological resources to provide data, helping them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But that's not really the, the core of the problem here. The core of the problem is uh, areas of the state, uh, and not even like mid-sized cities, but, you know, again, between three and 10,000 people that just don't want to be transparent for their own, I think, set of reasons. They want to charge us $35,000 records, $25,000 records. Those are the kinds of cities in that population range that are trying to keep people from seeing what is being spent and how it is how it's being spent. And uh, certainly, I think smaller towns might need a little bit of help, but smaller towns responded just fine. Larger cities in, in, Kansas, in Kansas City, St. Louis, they responded just fine to our, our project and our request. It's those kind of low to middling uh, population areas that are the hardest to get at. And I, I don't know that a carrot will uh, be sufficient to get those records out because to date, we can't get them out of those, uh, those records out. And uh, the state, it, just for summary information, has a hard time getting those records out as well. Susan. It's early August. I'm starting to see the signs, get the ads in uh, in the mail. It's back to school time. Um, there's a lot of money, yeah. a lot of federal stimulus money flowing into schools. What do we know about it? I mean, a lot doesn't really describe what's happening here. The federal government over the last year has allocated through three different programs, $200 billion to education, which is enormous. We have about 50 million students, so $200 billion 4,000 or so per student. And Missouri has received uh, 2 billion of that. And um, uh, there was a study recently done by AEI. And this is, I already suspected that this was true and they just provided actual evidence. Most of it has gone unspent. So Missouri got a couple hundred million in the first round of stimulus. And according to AEI, they've spent about 85% of that. The next two rounds where they got 800 million and then 2 billion. Um, so I, I'm sorry, it's all together 3 billion. They spent none of round two and round three hasn't even come in. So what AEI is predicting is that this money will be spent over the next seven years. And if you think about like when this happened, like this first round of stimulus money was called the CARES Act. And um, all the education ones within that were ESS, ERs. So we've done ESSER one, two, and three. In the beginning, it was for cleaning buses, for PPE, personal protection. It was for masks. It was for wipes. It was for the uh, plexiglass screens, all that kind of stuff. Okay, well, 
number one, those things are widely available now and they've been implemented. And number two, a lot of it we realized we didn't even need to do. And then uh, buses didn't run for a long time. So I, I think what has happened is that in terms of just actual COVID related costs, keeping kids safe, much less was needed than was appropriated by the federal government. So we had massive dollar amounts coming in and most of it, like 90% of it, gets allocated straight out to school districts. And to your point about what you guys were just saying about the small townships and counties, we have some, we have a lot of very small school districts in Missouri. We have 500 and some 520 districts, but many of them are a hundred students and less. And so I've looked at a couple of their budgets for the year and you can see the CARES Act money sitting there in their revenue. They haven't spent any of it. I suspect that if you are a school district, well, there's one school district in particular, they have 35 students. Their budget's normally about $2 million. They got over a million in CARES Act funding. They don't know what to do with it, right? So money's coming in. They're not going to say no to it. They do have a time limit, which was extended, uh, but they got to figure out how to spend it on something that looks like it's COVID related and they've got years to do it. So um Number one, I think too much money was allocated. Number two, I've said this on this podcast before, I think five years from now, we won't know where it went. And um, I think most of it will end up going to non-COVID related um, expenses. And so if you uh, spend any time around schools or teachers or school board meetings or soccer fields, you know, there's a constant refrain that they need more money. No matter what you ask anyone, should we spend more on schools or less on schools? It's always more. Should we pay teachers more, pay teachers less? Always more. How much more? Double? Yeah, sure. Let's pay double. I mean, people are always for spending more money on schools because they don't think they're funded enough. Well, I can tell you right now in Missouri and the rest of the country, money is not the issue. No one should be asking for more money. I believe that our schools and districts have more money than they can spend. I've heard that at the state level too. There's more, you know, so now we're seeing even at the state level with DESE and, and with some school districts, they're getting to wish lists. They're getting to like, you know, it would be great. Now we've got the money. Why don't we do this thing we've thought about doing? And that was not what this was intended to be. So, so you've got that going on. And then of course, um, what it was supposed to be directed to in addition is um, figuring out where kids are physically. A lot of kids got kind of lost or didn't sign up, figuring out where kids are physically, figuring out where their learning is, because a lot of kids um, did not excel academically in the last year with the variety of circumstances they found themselves in, and to direct significant resources to getting them back to where they should be. Well, now, you know, we've got new mask mandates. Now we've got the Delta variant. We've got kids in the hospital. We've got States like Illinois, they're mandating, mandating masks at every school in the state. We've got an open question in the St. Louis region, but some districts have already said some of the bigger ones, Rockway, I'm sorry, Rockwood and Parkway and Afton, that they are going to require masks. So now you've got probably a whole nother group of uh, parents with incoming kindergartners that are probably rethinking making them go with masks or pre-K, which happened last year. We lost like 10% of kindergartners. And once again, we're going to be in this you know, sort of data vacation where we're not going to know where kids are. We're going to have parents who are so unhappy with the one and only solution they've been offered that they will do anything to get something else. And then we're going to have costs um, 
uh, shoved onto parents again. So if you don't like your kid, your kindergartner going to school with a mask on, you can figure out a different place for them to be. You can try to homeschool. You can pay out a pocket for them to go somewhere where they don't wear masks. And that's what, at the same time that sounds like a lecture, I apologize. But at the same time that Desi's got all this money coming in, we have parents who are having to pay uh, out of their own pockets to get a solution that works for them, for their kids. And I think that um, the, the legislature, the governor needs to begin to recognize that parents are going to be put in this horrible position again. There's plenty of money around and some of it needs to be given directly to families. So that's my lecture on that. Not just to Susan, but to, to Patrick and David. So what do we do? So we, the, we can't go back in time. The money's already out there. What do we think? Is clawbacks? Do you ease the restrictions so the, so these schools can, uh, spend it on a wider range of things. Do you just let these small school districts keep a uh, an extremely large rainy day fund? Well, let me speak to that real quickly. I know that the the last round of stimulus funding came from during the current presidential administration, and it has a lot of um, guidelines around using it for teachers, using it to either retain, to recruit to compensate, to make sure no teachers lose their jobs. So the teachers took a much bigger uh, role in the last round of things. So I do think it will eventually get spent. And I think a lot of it will be spent on staffing um, regardless of the outcomes of that. But I think that one thing that we could be doing right now is, um, and this is in also that air document. One thing we could be doing right now is putting money directly into the hands of parents. Oklahoma, South Carolina, Arizona, plenty of states have done emergency grants for parents, emergency grants to help parents pay private school tuition, safe grants. Um, Immediately, you know, there are going to be parents, there are parents, I'm sure, today whose kids are in the Parkway School District, which is a very, um, has a very good reputation, who wish that they could go to the school district next door because they don't want their children to have to wear a mask at school and they won't be able to do anything about it. And I think, you know, within one county, we have like 50 school districts. So I think you're going to see a lot of parents who live very close to each other with very different circumstances. And uh, it's going to be an unhappy time. So I think it would be um, smart to do uh, an emergency grant type of um, legislation or executive order for parents who want it, who who really are uh, unwilling to participate in the one and only option they're given this year. So that's one thing we could do. We have the money to do it. Um, Other governors have used their flexible education stimulus money to do that and to make it directly available to parents quickly. We could do that. But, um, you know, beyond that, from the federal level, if you don't spend it, if you don't spend it according to the guidelines, you're supposed to give it back. But I promise you it will be spent and the guidelines will be loosely interpreted to make sure that no one's giving it back. I've never seen the government, any government entity, maybe Patrick and David know better than I, give money back. All right. Wrapping up, Patrick, what are you looking forward to in the next week? Uh, We are going to send out uh, another round of uh, Sunshine Law requests uh, with the uh, Show Me Curricula project. I'll provide more details next week, but I think it will be it's an important next step. Uh, So far, we've found a little bit about what's going on in the classroom. Uh, This Sunshine Law request is going to deal with some of the stuff that's outside the classroom. Uh, and I'll uh, hopefully have something to report fairly soon. David. In Kansas City right now, there's a debate going on within the Economic Development Council of Kansas City on whether or not to expand the use of 
enhanced enterprise zone tax credits and tax subsidies and abatements to whether to expand their use for a residential buildings, specifically specifically uh, new apartment buildings, new condo developments, and, and the like. And I think this would be a, a very unfortunate choice. Uh, enhanced enterprise zones and the predecessor enterprise zones were never intended as a subsidy for residential housing. There are many, many other subsidies out there that can be used for residential housing, and there's no lack of subsidies available to apartment developers in Kansas City. But likely in response to commendable yet modest movements in Kansas City City Council to slowly but surely reduce, I don't even want to say rein in, I just want to say slightly reduce some of these abatements and subsidies, developers are now arguing that they need to expand the EEZ program to include these residential developments. I think it would be a a very, very poor decision and something that more will be coming out on this in the in the near future. And Susan? I'm just going to be looking to see what districts are doing about back to school, uh, if districts are going to ramp back up on their virtual programs and give parents that option again, and uh, if there's going to be any response from Jefferson City regarding districts mandating masks or mandating no masks or parental choice around masks. So I think that's going to be the education story for the next couple of weeks. All right, David Stokes, Patrick Ishmael, Susan Pendergrass, thank you all very much. And as always, there's plenty more at showmeinstitute.org.